Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. Uh, can we all just agree there's something special about coming to church? Yeah? Yeah. And, and I think what it is, it is for me anyway. I mean, there's a million great things. There's things like uh, seeing familiar faces and fellowship and, and getting prayed over at the end. I mean, there's a million great things. Here's my favorite part. My favorite part is sitting in the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? Is just being able, whether it's worship, whether it is preaching, whether it would, no matter what it is, being in this atmosphere where it feels like the Holy Spirit's going around and doing individual ministry on every heart, whether you're doing something or not, it's just consistently going. There is something about the atmosphere of being in a local church with a body of believers where God is moving strongly. Amen? Amen. It's so good to have you. We have a lot that we're going to cover. I think that God is going to be ministering in a very powerful way today. So let's go ahead and take out our Bibles and the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we can begin. We are in part six of our Knowing God series through the book of Job, and As you know well, we are in the year of wisdom. The year of wisdom is when we are looking at things afresh and we're trying to challenge our assumptions. We didn't want to call it the year of agitation. That sounds horrible, you know what I mean? So we came up with a nice name and that's the year of wisdom. In this series, we are studying the fact that God is not like we think he is. I can say that for sure, no matter who you are, no matter how brilliant you are in the word of God, God is infinite and unknowable. There's so many things about him that are not like we assume. So we're just going to be picking on a few pieces of those, opening them up brand new and saying, Lord, how can we know you more clearly? How can we expand our hearts to receive you and worship you rightly. That's really our goal for today. Now, I entitled today's message, The Greatest Doubt. The greatest doubt, the lie that God is not good. The lie that God is not good. And I want to begin by talking about the Garden of Eden. That in the Garden of Eden, we know that Adam and Eve were created in this beautiful paradise And then one day, while Eve is hanging out next to a tree where God had told them not to eat the fruit from it, we know it as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As she's hanging out near there, which I think is quite suspect, a serpent comes up. We find out later on in Scripture that that serpent is Satan. And he starts a dialogue, a temptation And she falls for it. And I just want to read that together. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It's on page 2. I think, I I don't know, I I don't know where it's really at, but I think you can find it. Uh, The book, whole Bible thing starts with Genesis, and it's only on chapter 3. So wherever we're at, we'll find that one. Here we go. It, It sounds like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? All right, let's pause right there. How absurd of a question. 
Did God say you can't eat anything? Because remember, they're all vegetarians at this point. So if they're not eating from the tree, what are they eating? Did God really ban you from eating all the fruit of the garden? Now, this is an absolutely brilliant trick. What he's doing is he's engaging her in a conversation where she's instantly going to think, I'm smarter than he is. Right? Isn't that how it's going to go? Where she's like, oh, that's a dumb question, poor little snakey. He has no idea what's going on. Well, he knows full well what he's doing. And he asks her a question and she responds. The woman said to the serpent, we may, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay, now she's starting to extrapolate and make up more stuff to sound smarter. No, he didn't say that. He said we can't even touch this tree. We have no evidence that that's what God said. God said, don't eat the fruit, for if it, uh, you will surely die, right? Verse 4. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, let's pause again. Is he right? Yeah, he's kind of right. So the first thing he says is, you will not surely die. In a moment, they're about to eat it and they're not going to die. So in that sense, is he right? Yes, he knew that he would be proved right and then they would think it was a good idea. What's the problem with that? It's only half true. They didn't die physically, they died spiritually in that very moment. So Yes, he's right in one sense. No, he's not right in another sense. And then he says, for God knows that you'll be like him in the sense that you will know good from evil. Is that correct? Yes, it is. That is the whole point. And then she eats. Take a look at this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Okay, that was a temptation. It worked. Satan has not really had to change his strategy up much ever since. We always fall for the same thing. What was the temptation? Eve, take a look at your situation. Take a look at your circumstance. God's holding out on you. There's more, lady. And don't you want more? I mean, because there's stuff you don't have. And we all know if we don't have something, we are lacking. Lacking is terrible. So God's not being a good leader. Man, I don't know about this God guy. I don't know if he's as nice as you say he is. Because if he was really nice, he'd give you everything you wanted. Is more better? Wasn't the whole point that brought them peace was that they did not have that fruit of the tree? Wasn't the fruit of the tree the thing that screwed them up? Yeah, more isn't always better. Sometimes less is better. The point was they needed to be obedient. And they were not. They reasoned it out 
and let their circumstances tell them God's not treating me right. And that is what we keep falling for. All right, here's the deal. Whether or not someone is directly lying to you or whether or not they're withholding information, both, both those are deception, can we agree? Here's the problem with deception. Deception ruins how we build our reality. We build on what we think is real. So for example, we go to work because we believe that at the end of the two weeks, we're going to get a paycheck, right? What if at the end of the two weeks, somebody says, ah, you know what? I don't have it on me. You coming back next week? Do you understand that? All of a sudden there's a, whoa, whoa, whoa. You deceived me. I thought that you told me if I was going to work, I was going to get paid. And now you're asking me to try it again. But because there was a deception, I can't build forward because I don't know what's going to happen in the next two weeks. Can you, you follow me? All right. Same thing in marriage. We get married with the understanding that we are both building a life together. When we're together and when we're apart, we're both building towards the same goal. But what if that's not true? What if your partner is building another life and they're ultimately going to separate from you? When you find out that type of deception, you don't know what to do next. Now, this is obviously getting real personal. I've done counseling in the majority of my life, and I've sat across from couples, and they have brought this to the table. I found out that she, I found out that he have been lying to me for the last six years. Here's what's so difficult about that. It's that... No one is quite sure when we are making progress. So if we sit down in the counseling session and we say, all right, let's try again. How do you know if we're moving forward? Because you thought you were moving forward last time. So here's what Satan knew that Eve did not yet know. It's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. A breach of trust breaks relationship a breach of trust breaks relationship you cannot build on a guess you have nothing to put faith into and so what becomes so difficult to get out from under it is you're not sure when we are telling the truth if we didn't tell it last time how are we going to be able to be sure that we're saying it this time is everybody with me so far? Okay. Here's why. I, I heard this taught recently, and it was, it was really powerful to me, uh, so I ripped it off from another pastor. <laughs> he highlighted Ephesians 4.25. If you don't have trust, you don't have relationship. If you don't have relationship, we can't build anything, Right? So he said, this is why Paul said to the church in Ephesus, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
Now, what was so powerful about that is as much as you read that and you go, hmm, yes, good word, right? Like it sounds solid. But when you read it in the New Living Translation, listen to how it begins to morph. Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Now, let's read it in the message. What this adds up to then is this. No more lies. No more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Y'all tracking with me? We can't build a deeper relationship. We cannot build a future until we are sure of what we're working with. Because a breach of trust breaks relationship. Satan knew that. What was his first goal? Get Eve to doubt the goodness of God. Break that relationship by breaking trust. And he's been doing it to us ever since. Here's how we're going to make it personal. You ready? Some of us have a hard time going deeper in our walk of faith because we do not feel we can trust God anymore. You see, some of us have trauma in our past. Some of us may have trauma in our present. And to know when you come to church that you are told that God is there. God was there. God is everywhere. To know that he did not stop it feels like a violation of the highest sort. And there's a breach of trust. And so your relationship with God can only go so far. And even though you want to move forward and you like God and he seems like a super cool dad. You have a hard time letting a certain part of it go. That you now aren't sure how much you can rely on him because he didn't do it that one time. And so when everyone else is singing worship, you sing it, but you have a bit of a heavy heart. That when we have a wound like that and we cannot process it and we cannot sort it, we wall it off in a steel chamber of our heart and we solder the door shut so no one has access to it. What it becomes is a weight upon our heart. It makes it very hard to pray for other people to have breakthrough in their lives. It's very hard to encourage another person to trust in the Lord when you yourself know in the back of your mind you cannot. It hampers our joy and it hampers our ministry. Can we all be clear on that? Yeah. But what if we're, what we were trusting in was never agreed to by the other party at all? Was it a violation of trust? Or was it an unrealistic expectation? Give me an example. Y'all know what a trust fall is? Right at these corporate events, right? You do this whole thing where you stand up and then you're supposed to fall backwards and everyone's like, we'll catch you, that kind of thing, right? And you're like, oh, I don't know if you will. And then you fall and they catch you and everyone goes, oh, I trust you forever now, that kind of thing, right? 
All right. It is one thing to say, dude, fall off the ledge. I got you. And then you just let them drop. That is a violation of trust. Can we all agree on that? That is messed up. But it's another thing to have someone that you think is your friend and you have an unrealistic expectation of that friendship. You're going to call me every day. You're going to be my best friend. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And then ultimately they disappoint you. And you're like, how dare you violate my trust? They're like, whoa, hold up. I never said I was doing any of that stuff. Both feel like betrayal, but only one is. What did God really tell you that he was going to do? Because when God tells you something clearly, he will always keep his word. So what are we believing about him that is not accurate and not true? Is our violation in our heart truly a breach of trust? Or is it a misunderstanding? Uh, this is what we're going to talk about today, going through uh, the book of Job. Uh, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, the story of Job basically goes like this. There was a, a dialogue between God and Satan. God brings up Job and Satan says, the only reason that guy likes you is because you're super nice to him. Let me at him and I'll show you what he's really like. Well, God says, okay. And then he takes everything away from Job and then ultimately strikes his body with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Job is wallowing in pain and misery, and he gets into a dialogue with some friends, and then ultimately God answers him. So what we're going to do is, as he's going through this suffering, I believe he makes at least four points about his suffering and God, doubting that God is good. Now, I think we can all be real clear. This is not just Job going through this. I think every time we go through deep sorrow, we always question God's part in it. I mean, I don't know how not to, right? So it's not just him, it's us. But let's go through his four points. I'm going to take the majority of the time on his first point. So don't get scared, right? Like, man, if we're going to do this, you know, right? If we're going to take that much time on every point, we're never going to get out of here. Okay, so first one's long, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up, all right? But here's this first point. S my suffering is God's fault. My suffering is God's fault, right? Here we go. Let's listen to what Job has to say. You will not be able to follow along with me. I'm going to be jumping through page after page after page and moving pieces around. So just listen. Here's what Job said. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Who among all these people does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you, God, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. 
and he has shriveled me up. He has torn me in his wrath and he has hated me. Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? All right. That's Job's feeling. God, you're in charge of this. You're in charge of the world. If I'm suffering, this is your fault. You are doing this to me. Now, is he right? Well, let's do an examination of God's role in Job's suffering. All right, so let's once again, let's go through the story. The story begins by saying that Job was upright and blameless, right? Right off the bat, he's the best of the best in the human category. Then God brings him up to Satan. Do you remember that? God is the one that brought him up. He says, have you considered my servant Job? He's awesome. To which Satan then replies and says, yeah, yeah, only because you give him stuff. If you strike him, he'll curse you to your face. Listen to this. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand, meaning don't touch his body. Then we find out what happens. Do you remember what happens? Two raiding parties, one from the Sabians, one from the Chaldeans. They come in and they attack his servants, kill them, and steal all of his animals and livestock. Then, quote, fire from God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. Now that's called what we call an act of God. It's interesting, they call it the fire of God, but we know who's the one in charge of it. Satan, but God always gets the bad reputation, right? Fire from God fell down, burned up his servants. Then a great wind came across the wilderness and knocked down the house with all 10 of his kids inside and they all died in one shot. All right. Then God brings up Job again. Hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Quote, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Okay, do you see this dialogue going on? Satan said, well, yeah, you won't let me touch him. If you use your hand and strike him, he'll curse your face. God said, I'm not going to touch him, but you have the right to touch him, but don't kill him. So, quote, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job. Who struck Job? Satan did. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to the end of the story, in chapter 42, it says when God got involved and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And we go, oh, see, there's your answer. Satan did all the bad stuff. God did all the good stuff. See, it's easy. And then you read this line. Job 42, 11, and, they sh and his friends showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. Oops, now it's all complicated again. This is why we have such a tension in our spirit when bad things go down. Because we can't sort it. We're not sure who to blame. 
It's one thing if we can blame ourselves. Man, I shouldn't have smoked my entire 70 years. Now I have emphysema. It's one thing when we can directly attach it to some choice that we made. I should not have driven drunk. I should not have whatever. It's one thing when we can do that. But when it comes in from nowhere, when it comes in completely unintended by us, we want to blame someone because we do not believe in our heart of hearts that the world is random. So whose fault is this? Is it God's fault? All right, so are we ready to handle this issue? Let's try to sort this thing out. Here we go. Here we go. Is God ultimately in control? Yes. Could God change the outcome? Yes. Does that make God responsible? Hmm. Yes and no. If God sets up a system that he knows that Lucifer and mankind are going to break, does it make God guilty of the break? You tracking with me? Do you understand how that question starts going? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure yet. Okay. I'm going to use one example of how these things interweave, right? And you're going to say right in the middle of it, pastor, you're splitting hairs. Yes. Yes, I am. Listen to this. Just chew on this verse for a while. Here we go. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I'm sorry, what? Jesus was led by who? The Holy Spirit into the desert. What was waiting for him in the desert? The devil. What did the devil do? He tempted him. But who got him there in the first place? The Holy Spirit. Now you have the two factors coming in and it's creating a scenario. But who's doing the temptation? Satan. All right, here we go. Let's go a little bit deeper. First Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, notice he doesn't say, and I'll take away the temptation, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Okay, now, if God leads you in, he will always provide a way out. So in a sense, you can tell his goal is never to crush you beyond repair. His goal is never to harm you. Why would you give someone an escape out if you're trying to destroy them? That is not correct. And you go, okay, I, I, all right, so you're making it confusing. All right, well, we're not done. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Okay, then why are we praying in the Lord's prayer and lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Ah, come on. Like, which, what is it, right? Okay, here's the answer. And it is in splitting hairs. That is where the answer lies. Everyone is clear here that the same word for temptation is the word for test. Are we clear on that? In scripture. 
Same word is used. The only difference between a test and a temptation is context. What's the motivation behind it? If the motivation is to destroy, it's a temptation. If the motivation is to test, it either reveals or strengthens. But don't they all feel the same? A test sure feels like a temptation and a temptation sure feels like a test. But the motive is different. God tests. Satan tempts. You go, okay, all right, so one more piece. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And if you let steadfastness have its full effect, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The story of Joseph. Y'all know the story of Joseph? Here's a young guy, hyper gifted. Dreams, dreams. I mean, he's just brilliant. Everything about him is awesome. He decides to share that with his family. His brothers betray him. They sell him into physical slavery. He's taken into a foreign country. He is accused of a rape he did not commit. He's placed in a dungeon, and even after helping out the leadership, he is forgotten in the dungeon for years. One day, he gets let out, and God finally gets him to be the right hand of Pharaoh, whereby he then, what, has his brothers come back to him. He provides food for his family during a famine and ends up having all the Jews show up where he creates an area called Goshen where when the plagues rain down on Egypt, the Hebrews are protected. The Hebrew people become a mighty numerous nation who are then led out into the promised land. Notice how his perspective went. It says this, Genesis fifty twenty. as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You're like, okay, so what's your point? Here's my point. What happened to you in your violation? What happened to you in your abuse? What happened to you in your harm and betrayal was wrong. Those people meant it for evil. I'm not going to call it anything else. You're not going to hear me put a pat answer on it. You're not going to hear anything other than you were harmed and it's not okay. What they did was evil. I call it evil. Your pastor calls it evil. God calls it evil. Everybody's calling it evil. Nobody's giving that person a pass. What they did was wrong. But God in his love for you refuses to just let it be evil. And he is so brilliant and so creative 
that he is not only going to build you through it to make you stronger than you were before, but he's going to do it in such a way to embarrass the enemy that he would ever dare touch his children. You tracking with me? We say this, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. Bad things happen to good people. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because God's that brilliant. He's still watching his kids. He knows. Well, okay, this is where it all comes down, right? If we are not willing to say, God, this is your fault because we're trying to be too nice, we will default into the second place, which was, okay, but you could have stopped it. Isn't that where we usually camp? God, you could have stopped it. Could he have stopped it? Yes. Why didn't he? We wouldn't understand if he told us. It's interesting. Jesus names out basically, or I should say scripture, names out Jesus had four best friends. Two of them were women. Two of them were men. One of them was John the Beloved. You guys remember that? That was one of his inner three. That was his close little buddy. They think that he was the youngest of the disciples, the one that laid against his chest at the Last Supper. The other three were siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They all lived in a town called Bethany. What's intriguing about that is Lazarus died. Do you remember the story? Lazarus died. He was in the grave for four days when Jesus comes walking into town. Martha meets him on the way and she asks and says what everyone else is thinking and what you and I have been thinking about our particular trauma. Here's what she says. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. What is her assumption? That his presence would stop bad. Anybody remember why Jesus is late? It was on purpose. You remember? He chose. Everyone knew Lazarus is sick. He waited for him to die and waited for him to be in the grave for four days. It was not an accident. It was not an oversight. It was purposeful. God is not like you assume. Why would he do that? And you're like, oh, you know what? I know the end of that story. The reason why he did that is because, ta-da, he raises him right back from the dead. Dude, okay, so he's allowed to let people die for four days. And then, bloop, he pops him right back up. That's awesome. And then Lazarus died again. Right? Because he's not still alive, so he's dead. All right. Do you remember the story of the man born blind? The point was, the reason of that story was such a big deal is he was over 30 years old. And so the disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. But that God's glory would be manifested and he heals this dude, right? And we all go, whoa, well done, God. 
except the dude was blind for 30 years in prep for that miracle. Okay, that's a lot of blindness. And you go, okay, okay, well, God is allowed to temporarily let the dude be miserable, but really at 30 whatever, now he can see. It's all cool. Because what? It's temporary. What do you think this life is? It's temporary. Think he's going to fix it? Of course he's going to fix it. Here's the reality. Our individual stories are eclipsed by the greater story. Our individual stories are eclipsed by the greater story. There's something bigger going on. You're right, everyone. What happened to you was wrong. And if the whole world were about you, this whole world would be a tragedy. But it's not about us. It's about him. And in order for his glory to rise, the side stories have to go a certain way. But God will not allow it to be forever. It only has to be temporary because he can't have his kids hurt for too long because it'll break his heart. It's always temporary. You see, God didn't protect all of his loved ones. Remember in the shortest verse of the Bible, right? The one that you probably memorized. Jesus wept. There you go. That was your whole verse. Memorize that one today. When Jesus wept, he wept over Lazarus and everyone said, look how much he loved him. Everyone knew how much he loved his best friend, Lazarus, and he still let him die. Our circumstances don't tell us the love of God or the not love of God. Did the father love the son, Jesus Christ? Of course, fully. And yet he let him come here die a miserable death on the cross to bring about the redemption of mankind. Couldn't he have done it another way? Ah, here's the deal. We only read certain parts of scripture that we want to read to make God sign a contract he never signed. You ready? For every Daniel in the lion's den protected, there are thousands of martyrs who were murdered for their faith. They didn't get out of the lion's den. They died there. For every David and Goliath, there are millions who died on the battlefield. For every rescue of like Sarah's where God kept the bad guys away, there is a rape of Tamar. For every missionary protected from a violent people, there's a story of Elizabeth Elliot's husband who was murdered on the mission field. For every mother Teresa who lived a long life, there are many other servants who contract the very diseases they're ministering to. God is not as you suppose. Did he violate your trust? Or did you assume something upon him that was not appropriate? You see, when God gives a promise, he keeps his promises. Just be careful on what you think he promised. See, so many of us want to read scripture and we underline the cool super stories and we say, that's for me. We, we grab promises to other people. I know the promises I have for you, a future and a hope, right? We grab the Jeremiah, throw it on our fridge. That's not yours. That's Israel's. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will come and that's Israel's stop ripping off their promises. Now, does God have that intention towards his people, Christians? Absolutely. But when we do our highlight reel on the Bible, we're not looking at the bigger picture. 
We're only looking at the ones that make it look like our lives are going to go well. And then we get mad when it doesn't go that way. And God says, honey, I never said that. Okay. Do you realize that Joseph was built through his pain and struggle? The glory was not him being removed from pain and struggle. That's a different way of looking at things. Okay, that was Job's first challenge, all right? Everybody, there you go. That's why I told you, relax. We'll go real fast from here on out, all right? So his first one was, God, you're doing this to me. And the answer is kind of, right? But here's his other one. God, you made me. I'm getting picked on. I didn't ask for this, right? Any of us go into that place when we're suffering? Yeah, probably. Here's what Job said. What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him, that you visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me or leave me alone? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, And will you return me to the dust? Why do you hide your face and count me your enemy? Do we ever default into that? God, I did not ask to be born addicted to a drug I've never tried. God, I didn't ask to be born with depression. God, I didn't ask to be born in sex trafficking. God, I didn't ask for any of this stuff. Why are you picking on me? I didn't do this. This is you, right? That is obviously a strike against the goodness of God in our minds. All right, number three, God is crushing me and I think it's because he likes it. This is where Job starts to slip. Quote, God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Does it seem good to you, God, to oppress your people, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Do you understand the problem here? When we get into bad places, we start saying and making up things and saying, God, you must just enjoy this. Is that what you're doing now? Like you're just messing with me? Okay, but is God really capricious? Is God really toying with us? Is that God's nature? It is not. Okay, number four. Job said, there's no point in arguing with God. He's going to do what he's going to do. He's not even listening. He said this, if one wished to contend with God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against God and succeeded? Behold, God snatches away who can turn him back, who can say to him, what are you doing? He is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Right? Isn't that how Job feels? You're not even listening to me, God. You just shut me off. You're going to do what you're going to do. If I'm stuck in this place, I'm done, man. You don't even care. All right. These are all real things that even Christians say. Remember, he was the best of the best. I just need you to know, you think you're the only one playing these scenarios out in your head. God, why? We're all playing those scenarios out. It's not just you. 
You're not the one bad Christian in the bunch. You're one of the multitude. You're us. Of course you're asking these questions. But here is something that I've said a million times and I'll say it a million more. Don't let your circumstances dictate your theology. Don't let your circumstances tell you what God's like because it's not right. You don't see all the big picture. You don't have all the pieces to make that determination. You and I are seeing but a little tiny view. If we saw it as God does, and we will one day, we will have nothing but praise. And we will be so impressed by His love and kindness. Okay, throughout history, there's been trillions of opinions about God, has there not? Okay, as many people as ever existed, that's how many opinions about God there is. There's only one that I trust, and that is God's opinion about God. Would you turn with me as we close out to Exodus 34, verse 5. Exodus 34, verse 5. Moses was called to lead Israel on God's behalf, and so Moses said, I would like to know who I'm leading for. God, what do you like? And God said, well, I'll tell you. Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What do you just say? Kids, I am so loving, you couldn't even imagine. Now, am I just? Will I nail people to the wall for wrong things? Yeah, I will. Now, am I a forgiving God? Absolutely. Look at the descriptors God uses about himself. I am extravagantly loving. I'm over the top compassionate. Man, I love my creation. When Jesus saw the crowds following him that just wanted to see his miracles and eat his food, he wasn't mad. He said, the Bible says, and he looked upon the crowds and he had compassion for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Is God angry all the time? He is not. He is so loving and so kind. As a matter of fact, if we want to know what his attitude is towards the world, right? And remember, in the Bible, many times when the word world is used, it means those who are anti-God. So here's how he feels towards people who are anti-him. Ready? It's called John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son for whoever believes in him should never die, but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What is God's intention for his creation? Save him, save him, save him. That's God's intention especially believers. First Timothy 4.10, to this end we toil because our hope is set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. 
What's his point? God loves all the kids in the neighborhood and he will play with them all. He will fix their bikes. He will laugh with them. He will tell them jokes, but his own children get a special extra part of him. What's God's intention towards his people? Love, love, love. Well, I'll tell you what, a loving father wouldn't have let, let me go through this. You sure? Because I think he would. You see, I let my daughters go through a certain amount of difficulty because I know what I can pull them back from. Right? Like, for example, my wife and I, at some points, now, I'm the softy. Just, just be clear here, all right? So whenever I talk about any cool discipline I do, it's totally not me. I'm just taking her anyway (laughs) my wife loves my daughters to no end she's in my opinion the world's greatest mom and there was a time when she told my daughters to get ready earlier and they were screwing around and they all got late slips at school she let them get late slips she could have fixed it she didn't why because she knew full well what it would do and what it could become from that and there was a learning lesson and they would then become stronger she let them go through in their mind pain and problems right mom you could have stopped this now i have a tardy slip and i shouldn't have a tardy slip because i already had one. Oh, did you you see my point here's why i think it is different with god Because like us, he's good parents, but he is infinitely in control. He knows what other things he can bring you back from. He knows everything is temporary. He knows that he can knit you back together. There is no vase that breaks that he can't find that little tiny sliver piece and put it right back on. God can restore anything and everything. He's not afraid of your pain. He knows how to restore. Amen? Amen. So what can we count on today? God never promised an avoidance of pain, but he did promise that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He did promise I will never leave it as just pain. I will always make it into something gold that we have a promise in. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? Here's what we're going to do as we close out. The altar is going to be open here in a moment to be praying for anything. Um, But I would like a few of you to be prayed for specifically by me and the rest of us are going to intercede for you. So this is where the power starts pouring in. Okay, here's what I need. There are some of you that have had a violation in your life that God let happen. And it's still a wait today. You've tried to move on. You tried to pretend like everything's cool but your worship is a little bit dimmed. Your prayers are a little bit quiet. If any of you have had that type of either trauma, betrayal, wound, that you have locked away in your heart, I want to pray for the freedom of that today. Would you please stand? I know there's a bunch of you, so we'll just wait for you. Okay, yep, all right, yep, all over the place. You got something that's just still weighing on you. Something where you're not sure if you can trust God anymore. Yeah, right? Now I need you to understand there's a lot of us here. Okay, it's not just you. But we're going to pray for freedom. We need some health. We need some wholeness. Okay, so I need you to just remain standing and we'll close out. Holy Spirit. God, we don't know what to do. 
We've tried to move on. We've tried to forget it. And that's not what you told us to do. God, we don't know how to process it. That's why it's still there. It is something that to us feels impossible. But your word says with God, all things are possible that you are infinitely brilliant, that you can teleport into that tiny little chamber of our heart and renew it. You can bring the light into the darkness. You can heal that which is so wounded. God, we're not sure what we can track on. We're not sure what we can trust you in. Would you bring us clarity and remind us of your love and remind us that at any moment you can protect us from anything that you will never allow something to happen happen to us that you cannot pull us back from. God, we're afraid of things that you're not afraid of. We have named things violation that weren't violation. We've named things of expectation upon you that you never signed. God, you were with us. You do love us. It is very clear, but we can't feel that love soak down from our heads into our hearts. Would you open up that channel right now in Jesus' name? Holy Spirit, would you drip down into those hard places, those places that are walled off and break down the walls? Would you heal us? Can we trust you again? Can we start over? Can we build upon it? Can we be stronger than we were before? Can we have a deeper relationship with you? Can you embarrass the enemy and change our minds? God, would you rescue your kids? We're all standing here in need. So Holy Spirit, do what only you can do and restore us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.